0: you're listening to mystery still unsolved a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present i'm your host rochelle today we will discuss voodoo dolls alien probes and a missing dad a recap of unsolved mysteries season one episode 10 Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. Um, A warm welcome from me, your host. I'm so happy to be back here with all of you today. It has been seriously like a hot minute since our last case, but I'm back and I'm better than ever. Um, Originally, I had a different episode planned for today. Um, It was a recent unsolved mystery and we're definitely still going to cover it, but I don't know. I just feel like it needs more time to marinate <laughs> to make sure that it's perfect. Um, you have to have like a certain level of gravitas when covering unsolved cases, especially unsolved cases that are pretty recent. Um, and I just want to make sure that I fine tune everything. Um, to make sure that I'm being as precise and respectful as humanly possible so I can do the victim's justice. And I don't know, I just feel like I haven't really met that point with that episode yet. Um, I'll certainly let you know when I do the episode, but it's just not quite, it's not quite there. It needs to just kind of bake in the oven for a little bit longer. But don't worry. Today we are going to be covering one of my favorite unsolved mysteries episodes. It's actually the first unsolved mystery episode that I ever watched as a child, so it holds a special, albeit slightly traumatizing <laughs> place in my mind and heart and soul. <laughs> um earlier last week I watched it and all of these feelings like and fears came flooding back. Um it reminded me why for the better half of my prepubescent teenage life. I slept with my head like completely under the comforter. Um, it was my silly little like 10 to 18 year old belief that I would somehow create this very rudimentary alarm system in case like something ever crept into my room because we all know blankets and comforters are impenetrable and an alien's only weakness. Yes. You heard me correctly. When I was a young chap, I guess a young chapess if you will, I was terrified an alien would come into my room as I slept and abduct me and conduct experiments on me, and it's all thanks to this episode of my- of Unsolved Mysteries. So, thanks a lot, Robert Stack. Just kidding. Grammy, he knows I could never get mad at him for very long. <laughs> Uh, before we begin today's episode, I just need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, for starters, if you are not already following me on Instagram at my account at mystery still unsolved, quit the self-loathing, buckle in, and just follow me already, okay? Just, just do it. There you will get behind the scenes extra content and you will be able to discuss Kate's cases in a much more open forum where you can share your ideas, your thoughts, your opinions, your comments about the cases that we cover. Every once in a while, I will host a giveaway and my um, podcast anniversary is coming up, so you can bet your butt that I'm going to be doing a giveaway. Um, you can also DM a case suggestion. If there's enough information about your case that you send me, you might just hear it covered on an episode of Mystery Still Unsolved. If IG isn't your thing, no worries. You can visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. There you can listen to or binge, no judgment, uh, my 82 episodes. Yeah, that's 82 episodes filled with unique, never-before-heard-by-you content that I'm sure you will enjoy. If you like what you hear and you think more people should hear it, uh, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, preferably a five-star review um, so that people can find us. Oh, and one thing, okay, so in the next few weeks, I'm going to be cleaning up my episodes I was recently in contact with this like awesome podcast guru who gave me a few tips on how to better my, uh, my podcast. And one of the suggestions was, okay, so you know when you look at my episode list and it says E75, E76, E77, okay, that stands for like episode 75, episode 76, episode 77. Um, apparently, that is a big, no huge, no, 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 gigantic Mistake. Like it's a big no-no in the podcast community. And who would have thought? But I guess it messes up with like the elusive and unpredictable algorithms. (laughs) They don't like ease before the title of an episode. My like dumb little Virgo brain just thought it would be a good way to organize things. But I have apparently committed a podcast universe carnal sin. So I'm going to be going through and just cleaning up those a little bit. So if you Go on my, if you go to like listen to an episode and you see that there are no more E's, do not panic. It is all for good reason, I promise. All, all right. So I think that that's it for now. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, I don't want to unload an overload of burdens onto you. So without further delay, let's get on with today's case. So, just a heads up, Robert Stack did not come to play today. You know how normally the episodes begin with Robert, like, casually appearing out of nowhere in a dim alley or a marble staircase in, like, a three-piece suit and one of his iconic trench coats? No, not today, folks. Today, we immediately begin with a classic Robert Stack voiceover There're speedboats that are joyfully gliding across a lake. Um, people are smiling and laughing as they soak in the rays of the sun and the brisk air coming up off of the water. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we're watching an episode of Unsolved Mystery, so the answer to that question is a lot. A lot can and will go wrong, you guys. Shocker. I know. Shocker there. Uh, There are literally a million and one ways that things can go wrong, and Robert is about to tell us all about it. (laughs) Um, So there's this guy. His name is Charlie Sigmund, and he lived in Blytheville, Arkansas. He was a kind man with strong religious beliefs. Those along the Bible belt wear that belt real snug top their tucked in polo shirt uh charlie was a man lucky in all sorts of things he had a fairly successful business he was a beloved member of his community he had a ton of like fun man toys to play with and a multitude of friends but there was one thing that charlie wasn't so good at good old charlie boy was unlucky in love Um, married and divorced twice, one might have thought Charlie to be a cynic and for good reasons, but Charlie still carried hope that one day a lovely lady would enter his life and sweep him off of his feet. And wouldn't you know, a lady did. And her name was Anne. This time with Anne seemed different than his uh, past relationships with other people. Anne seemed different than the others. Charlie was confident that he had finally found happiness.
1: He was wrong.
0: That was real savage, Robert. Not cool. Um, During the early morning of October 20th, 1986, police responded to a tip. Charlie Sigmund had apparently been shot seven times. When police found him, he was lying on his stomach on the carpet. His clothes were disheveled. He appeared sweaty and, of course, was bloodied, all signs which pointed to some sort of a physical altercation shortly before his death. Anne was actually separated from Charlie at the time. Charlie had been killed in the home of her new boyfriend, Gary Goff. Anne never tried to pretend that her new boyfriend hadn't been the one who shot and killed Charlie. So, in that way, she was being cooperative. However, specifics the specifics that Anne claims about Charlie's death don't really seem to line up. Was it really self-defense, as Anne claimed, or... Was it murder? Okay, cool. Um, that scene that I described earlier of Robert Stack in his three-piece suit on a marble staircase has finally arrived. It was a bit delayed, but the Robert Stack trench coat train did, in fact, happen. Um, good thing, too, because I don't want to live in a world where Robert Stack, a.k.a. Robert Late Night Snack, doesn't appear in the light of the moon at least once in an episode um robert proceeds to tell us that charlie loved kids and when he fell in love with Anne, he also fell in love with her two boys from a previous relationship shortly after charlie and Anne's marriage he sold his home and moved his new family which he was so proud and protective of to a nine acre truck farm he felt that that would be the best way to raise some strapping young boys um, if you're an illiterate dunce like me, you might be asking yourself, what the hell is a truck farm? I thought factories made those things in Detroit. <laughs> just kidding. They're outsourced somewhere in Asia. Uh, but no, red trucks are not being plucked from the ground like beets. Um, a truck farm is a farm that just harvests fruits and vegetables to sell in a market. Like, okay. I don't know why you got to give it this fancy name of truck farm. Anyways, Bonita Sigmund, who is Charlie's mother, said that she doesn't know where things went south, but she's confident that at some point there was certainly love between the two of them. Uh, The children seem to have been like a pretty strong force keeping the couple together. Um, And the feeling was mutual for the kids as well. The kids absolutely adored Charlie. They loved having Charlie as a father figure. Um, Friends of Charlie's who are real gems, and I mean that sincerely, not sarcastically. Most of the men that I talk about on this podcast are pieces of garbage, but these ones are not. They're awesome. Um, They all say that Anne just never seemed Charlie's type. I don't know if that meant that they felt she was out of his league, or if they felt like he was out of her league, I don't know. They don't really specify. Um, they just say that she was so much different than the other women that he had dated, and one friend said, quote, Charlie was deeply in love with Anne, and out of respect to my friend, I will never say anything negatively about Anne, but she just never seemed his type, end quote. Seriously, I told you, he's a gem. What a gentleman. Um, but Charlie's not my friend, so I'll be the first to say, Definitely think Anne did Charlie dirty and has something, if not everything, to do with his death. But look at me, getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Pardon me. Um, In the summer of 1986, Charlie began to suspect that Anne was seeing another man. Mm. A lot of nights that she was unaccounted for. Um, Joe, one of Charlie's good friends said that there was one night in particular that she disappeared that was particularly unusual. Um, apparently Charlie had woken up in the middle of the night and Anne was gone from bed again. This was becoming a normal occurrence. Um, so Charlie put on a robe and walked throughout the house looking for any sign of her. Um, and he looked through this window and he could see their barn it was kind of like their refrigerated section of the barn and he saw a light on in there and he walked out to the barn fully expecting to see her in the passionate throes of a lover but what he actually walked into was much more perplexing dark and possibly even demonic When Charlie opened the door, Anne was sitting on the floor, half-naked. She was sitting in a semicircle of lit candles, and she was chanting unaudibly to a picture of the devil. It was almost as if she were in a trance. Um, The two had some sort of a confrontation, and then both went back into the house together. Remember, at the beginning of this episode, I told you that Charlie was a devout, God-fearing man of the Bible Belt, so you can imagine how this sort of thing might throw him for quite a loop. Uh, Three weeks earlier, Charlie had found something odd on his bed when he woke up. It was like some sort of voodoo doll with a needle stabbed right into the heart. That... Plus this, let's just say it equals Charlie putting pieces together and he did not like the picture that the puzzle was making. Uh, Disturbed by Anne's behavior, same, Charlie demanded that she move out. Anne did, and she took her two children with her. She moved to um, nearby Carruthersville, Missouri, to live with her new boyfriend, who was quite possibly the man Charlie had suspected that she had been seeing, semi-truck driver Gary Goff, who had formerly been a police officer. Ironically, Charlie and Gary had known each other as children. Losing Anne, but especially the two children, sent Charlie into a deep, spiral of depression. He longed for the family he had once had before all of this witchy hocus pocus business had come about. He talked to Anne frequently, mainly to talk to the children, but according to some friends, this had instigated some threatening calls from Gary Goff. On the night of October 19th, Charlie was having dinner with a friend when the phone rang. It was Anne. Anne told Charlie that the two children wanted to see him and that she was depressed and was planning to kill herself. Charlie said he had to go figure out what was going on. He even turned to his friend um, at the time and ominously stated, I might be getting set up here. After some hesitation, Charlie decided to go to Anne's. He almost brought a pistol for self-defense, but decided against it. Even after all that had happened, Charlie didn't believe either Anne or Gary were truly capable of causing him actual harm. According to the friend who had dinner with Charlie that night, Charlie was 100% sober. They had not drank any alcohol during dinner or afterwards. Early on the morning of October 20th, Anne ran to the police station and reported that Charlie was dead. Police immediately went to the scene. There were obvious signs of a struggle. There was blood smeared all over the walls, furniture knocked over, bullet holes in the walls. Um, Like I said earlier, Charlie was shot seven times, a couple times in the thigh, once in the scrotum, one in his side, one in his jaw. One had like grazed his right fist and then he had a shot in the ear and the fatal shot was in his neck. Two guns were found at the scene. Both of the guns had been used, one on the floor and one on the TV. Both belonged to Gary, legally, and both had been fired. A bloody iron was later found in a wastebasket in the kitchen as well. When Gary was questioned, he said that he had arrived home to hear Anne yelling for help. When he went inside of the home, he claims Charlie was beating up Anne. Gary immediately sprang into action, grabbed his guns, and fought Charlie off and subsequently shot him. So, classic self-defense. But that's according to Gary, you know, the former police officer who knows exactly what to say and in what order to make this an open and shut self-defense case. Let's not forget that Gary knows how to paint a pretty picture that would cast him in the role of hero. While at first the police were on board with Anne and Gary's account of the events, things went a little skewy real quick as they continued to investigate. They received a tip from one of Anne's friends who claimed that Anne had admitted to her that she and Gary had in fact lured Charlie to their home so that they could kill him and that Anne couldn't collect the insurance money since they were still legally married. The police wired Anne's friend and tried to see if they could catch Anne admitting on tape. During the wire, Anne's friend told Anne that she was thinking of going to the police. Anne begged her to give her some time, just enough time for her to skip town. And Anne's friend, of course, said yes, knowing full... full, She was fully aware the police had heard everything that they needed. The damage was done. The police had what they needed. Anne had incriminated herself on that tape. After this conversation, the police applied for a warrant to arrest Gary, Goff, and Anne... But it took a few hours, and by the time they had it in hand, Anne and Gary were gone. And Anne even left her two boys behind. Although Gary's car was later found abandoned in Arizona, the couple hasn't been seen since. The only way this case will find resolve is if Anne and Gary are found and brought before a trial. Uh, The case is actually still divided amongst police officers, half believing that it was self-defense and the other half believing it was actually premeditated murder. So there's like different feelings amongst the police department. Some believe that Ann and Gary's biggest mistake is just skipping town, being gone because it's incriminating them. Robert tells us they have never officially been served a warrant and that they may not even have any idea that they are wanted. Yeah, okay Roberts, <laughs> wink wink, I see what you're doing. You're trying to get them to believe that they're not in any trouble so that they'll turn themselves in, claiming that this is all just a misunderstanding, but we both know that would be a loud, steaming, hot pile of bollocks. Breaking news, do 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 I told you Robert Late Night Snack knew exactly what he was doing because shortly after this episode aired, Gary Goff surrendered himself to the police. He was brought to trial and sentenced to 20 years. He has since been released. And Sigmund, however, has still never been found. Now, whether that's because the two separated ways or because Gary murdered her for being the only person who knew the truth, we may never know. My gut feeling is telling me that Anna's dead, but only time will tell. The next story is the one I was telling you about earlier. The one that haunted me and had me freaked out well into my early 20s. Robert says, imagine you go out to run a quick errand. You return home thinking you've been gone, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, but find out that in actuality you've been gone for several hours. This is a phenomenon called missing time, and it affects way more people than you'd think. Is this a group of people with a strange yet serious medical condition, or perhaps something out of this world? At 8.45 p.m. on October 1st, 1966, a bus pulled up in front of Dutra's Market in the village of North Truro, Massachusetts. Only one man got off at that bus stop, a 19-year-old member of the Air Force, Airman First Class Robert Matthews, who was reporting for his first tour of duty at an Air Force base nearby. The area was quite deserted. He went to a nearby payphone on the corner and called the Air Force base to send a truck to come and pick him up. The man who answered told Robert that they knew exactly where he was and that a truck would be coming shortly and to just stay put. It was at this point that Robert saw three lights moving from right to left in the sky off into the distance. It was at this point that Robert became like just overwhelmed with this fear and dread. And he ran back to the payphone to call the Air Force Base and let them know something's not right. Something's funny is going around here. We need to call Ghostbusters, basically. Um, And imagine his surprise when he was told that at 8.50, approximately five minutes after his first call, someone had come to pick him up and that he was nowhere in sight. The Air Force man left, and then at 9.45, nearly an hour later, Robert placed his second call. However, in Robert's mind, it had only been four minutes. When Matthews arrived at the post, he was interrogated about where he had really been the last hour. The men didn't believe his story about the lights. Matthews was sure that they were doing some sort of like hazing or initiation of some sort. Like, remember, this is his first tour of duty. He's like, I don't know, maybe this is what they do to new guys. Um, Bud Hopkins is the author of Missing Time and Intruders. In 1964, Hopkins was a well-known artist. At this time, he personally experienced a UFO sighting with several friends and has been interested in learning more about them ever since. Um, Hopkins kind of delved into the world and became a renowned UFO expert Bud began getting phone calls and letters from people all over the country, and many of the reports had a lot of things in common, bouts of missing time. Bud grew more and more interested in this common similarity across multiple UFO sightings and decided to research it more thoroughly. He built out a team of psychologists and other UFO experts to study these individuals, and he later compiled the findings into several books. Bud assures us that this phenomenon is incredibly widespread and that there are most likely people you personally know who have experienced something like this, who are either like just in denial about it themselves or they don't remember it, or they're possibly embarrassed or full of shame to to share their story. At the time these books were released, Robert Matthews, you know, that Air Force man, was struggling with a secret that he had been hiding for nearly 30 years, a secret that began long before his experience in front of Dutra's market. And this is the part of the story that scared the absolute bejesus out of me when I was a kid. So buckle up, y'all. I try to write up a brief summary, but I honestly feel like you just need to hear it from Robert Matthews' own mouth to really understand the gravity of what he's saying and also to understand why me at the young age of 10... So full of innocence and wonder and awe, was so disturbed by this story and why I spent nearly the next 15 years of my life under a sweaty blanket for my, what I thought would protect me from the creepy thing that he describes. Okay, so here it goes.
1: When I was a child, maybe five or six, I just happened to wake up one night and I looked to my right in my bedroom and... uh... There was this figure standing there, a small figure, um, with a green glow to it. And uh, I sat up in bed and uh, I tried to scream and nothing came out of my mouth. And I thought I had lost my hearing. I thought I had lost my voice. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, The next thing I knew, uh, everything was black again and I was laying back down in the bed and uh, this thing this ghost I thought at the time when I was a kid I call it a ghost came over and sat down on my bed and uh, pulled up my pajama top and uh, and uh, I don't know what it did to my chest but I knew it was doing something to my chest at the time you know I told my mother that there was a ghost in my room she kept reassuring me that I was only having nightmares but I went through all my life, doubting my sanity, wondering whether or not these things have occurred.
0: See? Can you see why a 10-year-old would freak out about that? I feel like when you're 10, there is like this true fear about something hidden in the darkness of your room. It's always in movies and it's in TV shows. And I mean, it's kind of like quicksand. Like as a kid, you think it's seriously going to be like a common thing that you're going to have to grapple with in your adult life. Um, It goes the same with strangers in your room at night and things hiding underneath your bed. But you try to push it out of your brain and be like, no, 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 no. It's just in movies. That sort of thing is not real. But then for me, as a 10 year old, to hear this account from a real live person, a person who didn't seem to be acting, y'all, I was shook. Um, I spent several years at night preferring to sweat buckets under hot covers in July than to risk the alternative, which in my mind was an alien doing things to my chest in the middle of the night and impairing my ability to move or scream. In the words of Ariana Grande, uh, thank you next. Um, in 1987, Robert Matthews was on vacation and he was looking for a good a good read for his flight home. and he stumbled across one of Bud Hopkins' books. and he became immersed in its pages. He knew he had to reach out to Hopkins for help because he felt as if someone had gone into his brain, g- like gotten all the information from his experiences and then written it down. After a series of extensive interviews to ensure that Robert Matthews was of sound mind, uh, Matthew was put under hypnosis and they learned a few things about his past experiences, things his mind had been burying for quite some time. While hypnotized, Matthew told Bud Hopkins that he observed in the sky the three lights that he had mentioned previously, but then it goes a step further into the mysterious. The lights hovered and then one of the red lights came at Robert so fast. The light momentarily hovered over him right in the Dutcher's parking lot. He said he could see a bit of light shining through a crack in the spacecraft. Um, after that, a ramp opened down and Robert was lured into the craft When he enters, he saw four beings to the left and two to the right. He said that the craft gave him Like a similar feeling of like going into a doctor's office. Things were very clinical, they were sterile, precise. Um, He remembers sitting down on the exam table. Um, It's at that time that he sits down that he realizes that his shoes and shirt are like suddenly off, but he doesn't remember doing it or remember it happening. He just looks down and he doesn't have a shirt on or shoes. And these little beings came over and they examined his chest. Two of them, Uh, began discussing their findings like telepathically to each other. Um, And he says that he had no will or no ability to move or escape during this time. Bud Hopkins says this case is extremely similar to the other cases that he has worked on. Um, and he, I guess he's like worked on like over 200. He said people are abducted. They're taken to a clinical office where samples are gathered, like think like skin samples, hair, saliva, and oftentimes sperm and ovum samples. And then the people are just released. All of the people he's worked with describe the aliens similarly. About 85% of people he's worked with claim that the aliens or beings are little. They're like about three to three and a half feet tall. They're slender. They have grayish white skin, large craniums. Um, Their mouth is a slit, but they don't really use their mouths because they speak telepathically. They have no ears and black eyes.
1: I'm the first one to admit how outrageous all of this is. The people to whom it happens also say, uh, this just can't happen. Sometimes I even think it's harder for people like us to believe it than, than the outside, you know, people that it hasn't happened to. I'm I'm as much a skeptic as anybody else. I mean, I, I wasn't born believing that UFOs existed. Um, of course, I mean, you know, I get up in the morning and say, no, that can't be, just, uh, this is ridiculous. I can't use those words, abducted by aliens. I just don't know what it was. I know that some people came and did some things to me, but where did they come from? I don't know.
0: Okay, the last lady, I can't remember her name right now, but she was giving me some, like, interesting vibes because she's interviewed a little bit more later on in the episode. And she was, like, doing that thing where you're, like, claiming to not be crazy so much that made her seem like she was, in fact, crazy. It's like if I told you, like, I'm not crazy. No, seriously, I'm not crazy. Like, everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I mean, I'm not crazy. I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm seriously, like, I'm so sane. I'm so, I'm like the sanest person that you've ever met. Like, um, sane people don't say that, that they're not crazy that much. Um, I don't really know who you're trying to convince, or you trying to convince me, or you're trying to convince you. I don't know. At first look, like, I didn't think she was insane, but the more she went on and on and on about not being crazy, kind of made my alarm bells go off, like, I don't know. I think maybe she might be crazy. Anyway, she goes on to share a story from her childhood that she was on this road trip with her mom and sister when her mom ran out of gas. The mom grabs the gas tank little red thing from the trunk and instructs the girls to stay in the car. As soon as the mom is out of sight, of course, her sister gets out of the car <laughs> and she, the younger sister is like, what are you doing? Mom told us to stay in the car. Then she says that she hears her older sister gasp and say, oh my gosh, what is that? And she turns and looks over her shoulder and like a large craft is coming towards them. The two girls attempt to hide in the car, but it's too late. They've been spotted. The next thing she remembers is being inside of the craft. Again, this little clinical room Um, she says that she can't speak but remembers thinking about her sister and one of the little beings communicates to her telepathically that her sister is fine and that everything is going to be all right they're going to be returned home real soon the next thing she remembers after that is her mom running up to the car and the three of them just spiraling the heck out of that place the three never spoke about it to each other again
1: i live a perfectly normal life You know, I have a dance company. I I go to work every day. I have an apartment. I have two cats. I have a perfectly normal life. I'm not crazy. There's definitely something going on. And what it is, I don't know. I could be having a dream, and everyone else is having the same dream. But I'm not lying.
0: I love that vulnerability of her of, you know, trying to put the pieces together, being like, you know what, maybe I was abducted by aliens, but maybe I wasn't. Like, I don't know what happened, but I know that something has happened to me and she's determined to find out what it is. And I I honestly just don't even know how that feeling would, would be. To have something happen to you that's so unexplainable and you go to experts and they can't tell you what happened, that would just be a level of torture that I've never experienced before in my life. Um, even if you don't want to believe in aliens and whatnot, if you think it's all a bunch of hubaloo, I don't blame you. But just for a moment, imagine that all of these people, like what they claim is true. That would raise a frightening question, wouldn't it? Why are the abductors here? Bud Hopkins believes that ultimately there can be only one purpose, and he thinks it has to do with um, something dealing with reproductive research. With what intention these beings have, he doesn't know, but many people who have experienced these bouts of missing time, they were fertile before, but now have unexplained infertility for no reason. The experience... That all of the people that have been abducted experience odd reproductive issues that are rare within the normal gen, general population but occur in high incidence among this very small group of individuals things like ovarian cancer at like 18 an ovary burst that has to be removed missing testicles that were not accounted for in their earlier years by any doctor Twisted fallopian tubes, false positives in pregnancy, multiple miscarriages after being pregnant for six months or more. Um, People like getting pregnant and going in to have an abortion after having an ultrasound done. um, And the DNC is performed, but the baby is suddenly missing with no explanation. Like seriously weird stuff.
1: Scientists were doing uh, what they are supposed to be doing. Uh, they should be doing this and it shouldn't be left to people like myself. Uh, The existence of an extraordinary phenomenon, as this is, demands an extraordinary investigation. And unfortunately, most of the proper scientific community uh, is sitting on the sidelines, leaving it up to the rest of us to look into. And it's not what should be
0: happening. Okay, so we don't have proof either way. We don't have proof that aliens don't exist. We don't have proof that they do exist. But I don't know. I just feel like this is really wild. And it's just so wild that all of these people are experiencing similar things, that they're all having this high incidence of reproductive trauma and problems after the fact. I, just, I don't know. I just feel like it's so, so wild. But I'm wondering, like, what do you think? Um, let me know on my Instagram at unsolved on the little post that I made about today's episode. I just want to, like, pick your brain and um, not a creepy alien probing way. <laughs> Um, our last story is about a cute little old man who is missing and whose family is incredibly worried that he might be suffering from some sort of bout of like dementia or amnesia. Uh, Rogers Kane was 62 and working for the department of parks and recreation. He loved his job. It was a job that had helped him to support his family and send his kids off to college on February 19th. 1986 rogers told his sister that he was going to be going to a local hardware store and then he was just like never seen by his family ever again Uh, several clues have surfaced since rogers disappearance suggesting that rogers could still be alive The day after Rogers disappeared, he called a neighbor from a payphone on like a prepaid payphone card and told her that he wasn't feeling too well. The neighbor called Rogers' sister as she knew that they were looking for Rogers and his sister immediately went to the police because she knew that something was just not right. Two days after that, a private security company saw a man walking around in an affluent neighborhood who resembled Rajast? they said that the man seemed very confused and that but he was able to give them a phone number which ended up being his sister's that he lived with Teresa they brought him to the station and they called Teresa Teresa like hurried over there but by the time that she got to the station the man had somehow like escaped one month after that Roger's car was found on a busy street 22 miles away from his home All of his important, like identifying papers along with his glasses and false teeth were found in the vehicle. Another clue to Teresa that something was terribly wrong because Rogers was basically blind without his corrective lenses. She was seriously like so worried about him at that point. They also found multiple pieces of notebook paper with one of his um, daughter's phone numbers written like over and over and over and over again. It was as if he was going through some type of like mental health crisis or episode and was trying his hardest to remember his daughter's phone number. Police spoke to a gas station attendant close to where Rogers' car was found. They claimed that they remembered Rogers. They said that he had come in looking for the nearest mechanic. They assumed that he was having some sort of car trouble and they sent him to a place nearby. Rogers did end up making it to the mechanic because the mechanic said he brought in his car, paid for the labor beforehand, and then just like never came back to pick up the car. And this all happened the day after he disappeared. The mechanic said that as Rajas left, he was slurring, staggering, and swaying as he walked. Now, why no one saw this precious old man and offered to help him, like actually help him, I'll never know. But it's probably a good thing to mention right now that this all happened in Los Angeles. (laughs) And I'm sure people there are used to seeing all sorts of bizarre and odd things. I was talking to a cousin who lived in California for a long time, and she said that she had a friend who lived in Los Angeles, and she got kicked in the head at a bus stop because a homeless woman was mad at her for standing on her corner, aka home. The police were called, and the woman was arrested. But after work, when she got off that same bus stop, The woman was back and she was harassing other people for standing on her corner. Um, LA is wild. I can't even process it. It does not compute to this simple suburban brain of mine. Um, When LAPD heard about Rogers' condition, they were incredibly worried that Rogers could have suffered like a mild stroke or some other type of mental impairment. Also, apparently after he called his sister's neighbor at the payphone, the next several calls on the card um, we all in responses to like want ads in the local paper. Police believe that if Rogers had just suffered a stroke or some had some sort of dementia, his survival instinct might kick in and he might've been looking for a way to like secure money. Basically he had enough faculties about him to know that in order to get home, he was going to need money. He was basically on autopilot at that point. Um, the LAPD hopes that he was picked up by someone kind who took him to a hospital or a treatment center, and he's just been like living in that treatment center as a Jane Doe, um, and the, or not a Jane Doe, a John Doe, <laughs> and that he might possibly still be there. Teresa Rogers' sister says that she is not one to give up easily. She will not rest until he is brought safely home to them. Breaking news. The night after the broadcast of this very episode, Unsolved Mysteries got a tip from someone living in Topeka, Kansas. A man believed that he knew Rogers Kane, but under the new name of Elmer Jackson. The caller said that when he saw Rogers' picture on TV, he just knew it was his acquaintance, Elmer. Family members were pretty excited, um about this tipster, um, and they felt like he really did know their brother because the tipster had mentioned a scar on Roger's body that hadn't even been included in their initial report. Family members were so excited at the possibility of finding their brother, father, grandfather, that Roger's eldest son flew to Topeka straight away to retrieve his dad. But wouldn't you believe it? Elmer slash Rajas had yet again disappeared.
1: One, I know he's been in the area about a year, a year and a half, and a truck driver picked him up. Uh, decided to name him Elmer and gave him his last name, which was Jackson. So he, he goes by Elmer Jackson. Uh, he's been working several jobs, or side jobs here and there, laying bricks and things like that.
0: This has been the family's best lead so far, and as far as I can tell, the only good lead. However, Rogers is still missing to this day. Rogers was 62 the day he went missing, and it's been 36 years since this episode aired, which would make him 98 if he were even still alive. And so it is for these reasons I fear that he has probably passed away under this assumed name of Elmer Jackson. I was able to find out during my research that in 1995, his family made the difficult decision to declare him legally deceased. I do hope that one day his family will receive answers. Hopefully they find out where their father, brother, grandfather has been buried so that even in death, Rogers can finally be brought home. And those are our cases for today. I hope you've enjoyed the recap of Unsolved Mysteries Season 1, Episode 10. It is so good to be back. Summer is tricky for me because my kids are both home and driving me bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Um, but I'm going to try my hardest to be here for you every week. But just a heads up. Give me grace if I miss a week or two here or there because there's only one thing I love more than true crime, and that's my family. If you're not already following me at Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram, you should hurry up and do that already. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, preferably five stars, but just do whatever your heart tells you, I guess. <laughs> Tell a true crime loving friend or family member about me, but Hey, don't feel like you need to confine it to the relationships of friends or family. Tell your foe, tell your bus driver, your electrician, your kid's swimming instructor, that family standing behind you in the cars ride at Disneyland. I mean, that's a long line. So talking about this podcast should surely help the time pass more enjoyably, right? Am I right? Yeah, I think I'm right. But as always, the best way to support me and this podcast would be to join me next week When together, we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?